Well, our sermon text this evening comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's the first 14 verses. And if I had to pick a letter of Paul's that has always stirred my soul, it would certainly, and I think easily be, uh, the letter to the Ephesians. Obviously, I appreciate all of Paul's letters dearly, but there is something about the book of Ephesians. It doesn't seem to be that there's any pressing problem in the church. That Paul just begins and and throughout the letter rejoicing in the triune God and his work. And so as we come to the first 14 verses, it's this wonderful introduction to the letter where Paul is, is just simply overflowing in love at what the triune God has done for their salvation. So let us pray and then hear what Paul has to say. Heavenly Father, as we come to this, to meditate upon the ways in which you work out our salvation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that we would be like Paul, enraptured and in love with a God who goes to such lengths to save undeserving people. So, Heavenly Father, we pray now that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Amen. So, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll read to verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to, the, to his purpose which he set forth in Christ Jesus, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, in whom you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." If you had to describe to someone what salvation is, how would you describe it? I think sometimes we're tempted to slim it down to its smallest component, right? Jesus died for your sins so that you might be free. Maybe you could say it that way. Nothing wrong with that. But as Paul begins this letter to the church, he's, he's describing to us the way in which God has worked out salvation for his people. And he's doing so in a way in which it's, it's clear that he is enraptured with God. 
And there's this refrain throughout as he works through the way in which the Father accomplishes salvation, the Son accomplishes salvation, the Spirit accomplishes salvation. Each one of those things is a reminder that it it rebounds with praise to his glorious grace. I wonder if sometimes the problem with with evangelism is we are not enraptured with God. We're not mindful of the salvation and the ways in which he has carefully and detailed and saved us in such a rich fashion. I mean, Paul here makes really no mention of sins just yet. He is just simply saying from before the world was formed, the Father was at work. Somewhere in time, Jesus came to this earth and to accomplish salvation. And then finally, the Holy Spirit is now given as a promise, as a down payment for future glory yet to come. The third person of the Trinity is given in order that we might have assurance that even greater things are coming. I mean, even that seems to be something that I think cannot fully understand, that the third person of the Trinity, the one who hovered over, uh, over creation in the beginning, is given to us as believers so that we would know that there's even greater things yet to come. Paul is clearly enraptured with God. And so this evening, uh, what we'll primarily be focusing on is, is verses 3 through 14, which is, in the Greek is actually one long run-on sentence. And you can hear it even as I'm reading it. It seems as if Paul has not taken a breath. And actually in Greek, that's what it looks like. He just keeps going in this long sentence. But as he's speaking about salvation, to me the most fascinating part of this is the way in which he has broken up salvation into its component parts of the ways in which the Father, in verses 3 through 6, is at work. The Son, verses 7 through 12, is at work. And the Holy Spirit, in verses 3 through 13 through 14. And actually, uh, after having preached through Ephesians, this is something that Paul seems to do quite consistently throughout. And in chapter 2, he'll show the various ways in which the Trinity is at work. In chapter 3, he'll show this wonderful prayer that demonstrates the ways in which the Trinity is at work. And then in, I'm forgetting now, but in chapters 4 through 6, there's another instance of way in which the triune God is at work in ethics, in the way in which we respond and act to the gospel. So the book of Ephesians is not only Paul enraptured with God, but enraptured with the triune God. And so as we look at it, we'll start and follow Paul's logic of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, he begins in verse 3, and verse 3 through verse 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, I do think when we think of the word blessing, we think of it flowing out from God to his, creature, to his creatures, to his creation. Right? God blessed Adam. God blessed creation. But here Paul begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, obviously God doesn't need anything from us. He is perfect in and of himself. So what is Paul getting at at the beginning of this when he speaks of blessed be God? Most commentators note that here blessing means to speak well of someone, to extol God and all of his attributes. And as this one long run-on sentence will show, that is exactly what Paul does. 
Every, every phrase, every line is a way in which Paul is extolling God and his majesty. And so who is this God that Paul speaks of here? Well, he speaks of him not only as the God who created all things, but the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it reminds me of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray. And he says he starts off this prayer with our Father who is in heaven. But then note the way, as as Paul is extolling God, the way he, he transitions from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to now, this God is the one who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So not only is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he is the one who now in Christ pours forth these blessings to us. In Christ, those who are united to Jesus Christ, this idea of blessing, especially in the, the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, speaks of an idea of a settled, of a content happiness. You can think of Psalm 1, blessed is the man. This idea of a, of a contentment, of knowing that we are happy, we are safe, and we are secure in Jesus Christ. And that these, these blessings as we'll see throughout, is that we should be holy and blameless. Down at the end of verse 4, that he has blessed us so that we will be holy and blameless. And then Paul moves us back. We're tempted to to think back on maybe the day or the time you remembered accepting the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and experiencing that wonderful salvation. So I can remember back in sixth grade, I don't know what that translates to in the UK system. I have... Never understood that system, and I never will. But I remember, I remember I was at a camp, and I prayed a prayer, and I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a a huge turning point for me in my life. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that moment that I was saved. Some of you may have similar experiences. But Paul here says, well, let's actually, let's backtrack a little bit. And by a little bit, he brings us back before the world was even Formed. Think of what a tremendous encouragement it is to know that. That God didn't save you uh, sometime in your life, but rather before you were born, set in motion a plan to save you. I love this quote by Ian Hamilton. He says, Divine sovereignty is never presented to us in the Bible as a puzzle to solve, but as a comfort to cherish. It's a comfort to cherish. And that's what Paul is doing here. Is he's reminding the Ephesians. He's, he's reminding us that in the Father, our salvation took place before the world was formed. For the purpose of, right, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That adoption is certainly one of the, the sweetest doctrines in the Bible uh, I love it tremendously. It's not actually that just because I was, I was actually adopted. But it speaks of such a, a wonderful way in which it communicates us to the gospel. That we are, are moved from one family, right, the household and kingdom of Satan. This spiritual bondage. And we are moved into this new family. This new family in the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually as someone who was, who was actually adopted... There's not a time where this new family will then cast me out. People would actually ask me when I was younger, they're like, do you you ever want to find your real mom and dad? 
And I was like, why? I know where they are. They're just right over there. They're my mom and my dad. And so God has saved us and adopted us. And the strange way in which the, the grammar presents itself here at the beginning before verse 5. I just love those two words. Why did he do it? It says, in love. In love, he did it. Right, we are, are those who are sinners who deserve hell and separation. Yet God, our Heavenly Father, has saved us to make us holy and blameless so that we would then dwell in his presence forever and ever. I think the natural question then becomes, why? Why would God do this? What value is there in saving me, uh, of saving you for God? What is in it for him? Why would he do it? And Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. According to his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Later on uh, in Ephesians, in chapter 2, verse 7, Paul will basically say that, that God has so demonstrated his loving kindness towards us, that we were saved in order to be trophies, as it were, of his grace throughout all eternity. I didn't think of the, the analogy of a trophy, right? A, a trophy doesn't win a competition, right? A person, a person receives this as a recognition of his accomplishment, right? The Olympics are, they might be over, I don't know, I don't watch the Olympics, but right at the, the end of an event there, someone is awarded this a gold medal, right? As a recognition of their accomplishment in whatever sport they were, that they were doing, and so Paul is, is, is reminding us, right, of a great humility that should be had from us. But also a, a great hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did God save us? Well, he saved us that we might stand for all eternity as, as testimonies, as trophies to the fact that he is a merciful, kind, loving, and majestic God. And naturally that then flows for Paul from God who did this before, set in plan this motion, set in motion this plan, sorry, set in motion this plan from all eternity in order to save us to the praise of his glorious grace. Well, then we ask, how does God do this for sinful creatures? And it's verses 7 through 12. He says, in him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Right? Us as sinners, as those who were sons of disobedience, as those who belong to the kingdom of Satan. How are we transitioned from one kingdom to another? And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ, Paul says. Right? Jesus was that wonderful fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. That week in and week out, year after year, the people would bring animals to be slaughtered before the front of the tabernacle or the temple. I mean, just think about the imagery there. Year after year, day after day, buckets of blood and burnt animals. No escaping it to see the, the graphic way in which your sins are atoned for by the blood of these animals. That the blood is then spilt, the animal is dead in front of you. 
Sometimes the, 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 the blood is, is sprinkled upon the altar and then consumed in flames before you. Right? It would be this way in which for the, the Israelites of old to see their depravity constantly. And yet, as we turn the pages to the New Testament, we see that all the blood of bulls and goats could never actually bring about true and lasting transformation, but the Lord Jesus Christ in his once-for-all death could. Right? And Paul says that we have redemption through his blood, and we have forgiveness of our sins in the second half of verse 7. Our trespasses, our sins, all of us who deserve wrath, for the ways in which we have not loved God or our neighbor as ourself. Right, Paul speaks here that, that there is a great need in us to have our, our sins forgiven because they are many. But I think one of the things that stands out to me in the book of Ephesians so much is the language that Paul keeps using. Of riches and lavishing. Of love towards us. That God has lavished his grace upon us. That he has bestowed great blessing upon us. That he has has this unending wealth of of riches to give to us. Paul is is trying to show us what salvation really is. He wants us to see that salvation is more than having your sins forgiven. Though that's an incredibly important part of salvation. Salvation. But in a sense, that that initial justification of of that trusting and faith, having faith in Jesus Christ, that's just the beginning. That's just the fountainhead of this this river that is flowing. It's like a geyser erupting of these blessings that flow forth from it. And Paul wants to encourage us, right? Just as he, he said that in love, the Father predestined us before the world began. In verses 10 through 11. He says that the the culmination of all of this was a plan for in the fullness of time to unite all things in in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Before the world began, the, the Father had a plan. And in Christ, he comes at the right time that now in Christ... at the fullness of time, that the beginning of this plan is coming to fruition as all things are being united into Jesus Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. And in verse 11, Paul continues to encourage us just in this realization that we have been predestined. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And certainly predestination, predestination can it get a bad rap. There's been arguments in the church since time immemorial, it seems, about predestination or predetermination. The simple fact of you reading through Paul, you have to come to grips with the fact that predestination is actually just a biblical term. And now it needs to be filled out about what it means. But Paul's ultimate point here is not to, to argue about it, but rather to bring comfort through it. Because if if God has predestined us before the foundation of the world, that means before you have made actions, good or bad, that the Father loved you. That Christ came into this world then to save you. That as he is upon the cross at Calvary, he has in mind very specific sins that he is atoning for. 
That Jesus is not atoning for general sins or the idea or concept of sins, but just like those Old Testament animals. Right? You would place that animal there and place your hand upon him and symbolically transfer not sins in general, but your sins to that animal. And Jesus Christ upon the cross takes your sins so that your sins are actually atoned for. I mean, what good news is that? That the Father's plan coming to fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he planned it and executed it, and then will bring it to completion. Think about the believer then who stands before the Lord Jesus Christ. What condemnation is there now for those in Christ Jesus? If Christ has taken us all, taken all of our sins. As I said, this seems to bring Paul back full circle. That in, in verse 12, he says, all to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Paul just can't stop realizing the ways in which salvation is being accomplished in his life and the life of those he's writing to. Indeed, every Christian, it all turns back upon itself like this great circle where Paul then praises God. And then that brings Paul then to the work of the Spirit in verses 13 through 14. Right? Paul's logic here, if you will, uh, is that he, he shows us what God the Father has done in verses 3 through 6. And then he shows how he did it in the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 7 through 12. So then the, the question now becomes, well, how do you and I personally benefit from it? How do we appropriate that great reality? Well, Paul points out two things, both of which are, are, are the ways in which the Holy Spirit works in this world and in, in our lives. In verse 12, sorry, in verse 13, Paul speaks of preaching. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Paul says there was a, a time and a place where someone proclaimed to you the good news. And you believed and you accepted it. That someone told them that there is a way for wayward sinners to find mercy and life everlasting. And they believed it. There was someone who told them that there is a God who made all things. And that this is a God who is just and holy but also merciful. Right? And they told them how to obtain this great salvation through repentance and trust. And then Paul says in that, in that instant... When you truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is a guarantee of our inheritance. Until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glorious. To the praise of his glory. The spirit then applies the salvation that Christ has won. The Holy Spirit then dwells with us as new temples. To assure us of Christ's love for us. And again, as I said at the beginning, the, the thing that almost seems the most difficult to understand is how the Holy Spirit is a down payment or a deposit that God will fulfill all the promises that he said. He gives the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to now reside in us as, as new temples, those who have been cleansed by what the Son of God has done. So think of Paul's logic here. Think of what he wants to leave with us. 
He says, if God, the Holy Spirit, now resides in you, then you are new temples. If God, the Son, has died on our behalf to redeem us, then you are free and forgiven. And if God, the Father, had planned all of this before you were born, well, Christian, what can life throw at you now? Again, we'll probably all be tired of ministers reminding us that the last two years were difficult. They were difficult. But think of what Paul would say to that. Actually, in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul's in prison. He doesn't bring that point up till much later in the letter. I complain about everything, probably. And I think if I were writing this letter, I probably would put that front and center. Oh, by the way, I'm suffering for Jesus. Please, just, you should know this. But Paul doesn't. He says, well, I'm in prison, so what? It's all because the Lord has ordained it and he'll work it out to a great end. Instead, the, the thing that he starts with is to show how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit accomplished salvation for his people. All that the Ephesians might turn and praise God. Right, as, as we think about the beginning of this letter, right, difficult times have been had. There are going to be difficult times ahead. Right? We all know people, or you yourself may have a, a difficult medical diagnosis. We have several people in our church that are, are related to our church we're praying for who have cancer diagnosis and are terminal. You may have anxieties about the state of the world. Who doesn't? You may be worried about yourself or your family or others. And what the Apostle Paul would say if he were standing here is that those, while important things, it really is, those are important things. He says, let us stop and meditate on God's rich mercy in Jesus Christ. The Father loved you before you were born. He predestined you to be adopted in love. He loves you. I mean, think about that for just a moment. The Father loves you. And he loves you despite the fact that you're a wretched, rebellious sinner that deserves eternal separation from him. The Son loved you enough to redeem you. He suffered the chastisement of the Father. He took on your sins that you might gain an eternal family, an eternal life, an eternal rest. And the Holy Spirit loved you enough to dwell in you and to be with you all of your days. Right? He, he not only makes us more like Jesus Christ, fitting us and making us ready for heaven, but he reminds us of the triune God's love for us, a deposit, a guarantee of future glory. I mean, these first 14 verses simply highlight the fact that salvation is unfathomable. Like, it's just unbelievable to think how much depth there is to the fact that you and I are saved if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, why you and I are saved, I don't have a real answer to that. I know my own heart, my own sins. But nonetheless, Paul says, brothers and sisters, to dwell on these facts, that you were adopted, you were loved. God is with you to the end. And concluding, I think we can say this. 
right? The opposite of all of this. Again, if Paul were here, he would say, if you don't know this adopting love, this unending grace, this, this geyser of mercy and riches and blessing and lavishing love, Paul would say, come to the fount of life. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe, trust, give your life over to God. Repent and believe and trust him today. And Paul would say, right, that's the best thing that could ever happen to you. It's better even than you could ever imagine. That everything in this life pales in comparison to the glories yet to come. And so, brothers and sisters, let us take hope and take heart that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love us. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this evening that you would stir our hearts, that much like the Apostle Paul, we would overflow with this thankfulness, love, this rejoicing, this praising of your glory, because what you have done in each and every one of our lives. Heavenly Father, we pray for the blessing of your church here in Sully Hall, that they may continue to proclaim the glories and riches of salvation, not just from the pulpit, but throughout their lives to everyone that they know, and that, Father, you would reach, reap a rich harvest here. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, for his sake and his kingdom. Amen.